Madison, November 15th, 1947. Carol Carlson, a young wife and mother, alerts authorities that her husband has not returned home as scheduled. University of Wisconsin student Carl Carlson had gone to meet a Michigan student who was in town for a football game the next day. A game they would never get to see. An early season snowstorm would initiate a chain of events that would forever alter the lives of the young students, who would become unwilling participants in one of the most heinous crime sprees in our state's history. A night of absolute horror, resulting in murder, rape, and kidnapping, as conducted by notorious career criminals, Buford Sinet and Robert Winslow. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Bean. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this episode 29 of Badger Bazaar. I am your host, Scott Whitman, along with me, your other host, Mr. <laughs> Mickey Sanders. How you doing, buddy? Hi. That was a Great happy to, version of that. Good to see you again. It's good to see you, yeah. too. Nice to be here in my own house. <laughs> of course. It is after Labor Day now, so we are. Uh, it's nice and gray and cloudy here, cold, summer's and rainy. over, yeah. right? So now we head right into Halloween season. That's what <laughs> we do on Badger Bazaar. And uh, we want to remind you one last time before the conference hits up. In a couple of weeks, we will be at the Great Lakes Paranormal Conference in Glen Beulah, Wisconsin, at the old Glen Beulah School, 120 East Benson Street, Glen Beulah, Wisconsin. This is the weekend of September 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. 2023. We've had some inquiries about what days we're actually going to be there. We're going to be there every day. We will be there. Um, so if you come all day Friday, all day Saturday, if you're there by one or two o'clock on Sunday, you'll probably see us as well. So stop on by. We will be in the vendor room. We're looking forward to seeing all of you. It's quite the event they're having there again by Haunted Midwest Ghost Tours and Craig Naring. He does wonderful work. Jason Hawes is going to be there. Adam Barry, Shane Pittman, Dave Schrader, uh, Jeff Belanger, Chad Lewis, uh, Mike Huberty, all kinds of people, names that and you know. Scott Whitman and Scott Whitman and Mickey love. Sanders, of course. Of course, that's why we're talking about it, And right? Jim Cooper. We will be there, so come say hi. Come seek us out, and uh, we look forward to seeing all 
of your beautiful faces. A couple of true crime stories going on in the Badger State that we want to talk about right now because they've caught our attention over the last few days. We talk a lot about documentaries on here. We watch documentaries a lot. And, uh, you know, surprisingly, a lot of true crime documentaries are focused right here in Wisconsin because of our wonderful history. And a new one here that's kind of making waves quite a bit says, New series convicting a murderer promises to set the record straight on Teresa Halbach's case 18 years later. So kind this of is the opposite outlook as of making a murderer was. Huh? It is it takes the the opposite angle of making a murderer, obviously the the Netflix series of uh, 2016, I believe that came out that pretty much took the world by storm and really created the Netflix empire. I remember when when that first came out, but I remember you being real not impressed and thinking that was all just <laughs> I mean, this new one coming out is totally going to be what you are agreeing with. I don't want to say I wasn't impressed by it. I actually was impressed by it. No, I mean, you just, you didn't buy it. Right. I was was really shocked by the reaction that it got that so many people did buy into it because right. it's it's so obvious that it was it was set up for the one side i mean right. it's so obviously there, there's just so much more information out there that making a murderer does not tell you i've said on this show before um on the record a number of times that i think avery is guilty of sin now that's obviously that that doesn't mean that he is but you, and you've been adamant about that opinion since it first came out right I mean, I, I, you I don't wavered at all. I, I guess I'm really surprised at how reasonable people aren't, and that, that you know, that's just my opinion. I'm sure maybe we'll get flooded with emails about that. I don't know because it's a very divisive issue, and I understand that. But to me, the facts are pretty clear cut. And it was, I uh, mean, it's a conv- it's a convincing, compelling argument they make on making a murderer. But I, I really understand your point of view too. That's so one sided. One of the issues is that you know, a lot after this came out, a lot of people were saying. Well, this isn't right. He was framed. He needs yeah, a he needs a new trial. Arms. Yeah, he, he you know what they weren't understanding is that 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 was his trial. Yeah, that was his trial. That was his defense because he didn't have a defense. That right. you mean when literally when you have his blood on her car, her blood on his property, her keys in his room, the bullet that killed her in his garage, her bones in his burn pit, you know. Mere coincidence, all of them. I mean, all you could... All eight or ten situations were mere coincidence. All you could possibly say was that, I didn't do that. You guys did that. Right. So he had no defense. That was a defense. The jury heard all of this and rejected it. Now, obviously, this stuff does happen. We've talked about cases on this show where this does happen. Lori Bembenek. I have no question in my mind that she was framed. Right. Um, I'm, I'm almost you know, positive she so was innocent. This this stuff happens. But, you know, the difference in those two cases, and I think I talk about that in the Lori Benbenek episodes, is that the jury didn't know that the evidence that they heard was bullshit. Right. Right. They didn't hear the correct evidence. They heard fake evidence. The jury in this case heard the framing defense and they rejected it. So so this says uh, this is from uh, Fox 11 in Green Bay. It says, next month marks 18 years since Teresa Halbach's disappearance and death. Stephen Avery and his nephew Brendan Dassey are both serving life sentences for the young woman's murder. Their case gained worldwide attention after the 2015 release of Making a Murderer. A new series on Daily Wire Plus is aimed at setting the record straight about the case. Quote, I'm not going to make the same mistake that the filmmakers did. Unquote. Our strong words from conservative political commentator, author, and activist Candace Owens in the trailer for Making a Murderer. Six years in the making, the series is now available on streaming service Daily Wire+. Plus. Obviously what this is, is, is it, it's showing the viewpoint that Making a Murderer 
was not real, you know, and, and they come out with their own 10 part series. Um, and yes, I know that daily wire plus is a conservative website. I know that Candace Owens is a former liberal who, and she's now a conservative. None of that makes any difference to me at all. The only thing that matters to me is fact. But so, I mean, are they just going to be taking the arguments that were made and, and just kind of, so they, counter, they take counterpointing or, or what? So you can watch this on, if you're a subscriber to daily wire plus, you can watch this right now. It's streaming on their platform. I am not a subscriber to Daily Wire I'm Plus, but the first two episodes are free. You can watch it, and I, I think eventually this this whole thing will be free. So I did watch the first two episodes, and it takes making murder apart. Oh. Bit they by literally bit. take every it, argument it, they make. It and, shows you what making a murderer left out. It shows you uh, testimony that they show in the documentary that was spliced. It shows you depositions that they show in the documentary that were spliced. So they t- they take the big points in Making a Murder that shows that Stephen Avery was framed, um, and they leave it burning on the kitchen floor. I mean, it basically takes Making a Murder apart. So it's out there. That's not the first thing. Obviously, after Making a Murder, there were books all over the place that came and discredited Making a Murder. I do implore all of you to watch Making a Murder if you have not seen it. It's, no, very, com- it's very well done. It's it very is. compelling. And it is, I mean, it, you can get sucked in very easily. And like you said, there's not even that much of an argument to defend him, but it's still convincing. It, it is, right. It is convincing because they made it with a narrative. And, you know, you just have to understand that when you're watching this. And, and it's it was shocking to me. All the people that just bought into this hook, landing sinker. And it shows this in this documentary, how people all throughout the world knew nothing about the Avery case. We lived here when it happened, right? Right. We're here. We saw everything, the murder, the trial, everything. They knew nothing about this, all these people, until Making a Murder came out and they formed their entire opinion about it. And this documentary basically tells them why they're wrong. So. Balances it out a little. Yeah, if nothing I mean, else. again, if you haven't watched Making a Murder, watch it. You should watch it. If you're a subscriber to Daily Wire Plus, check this out. I'm I'm assuming at some point this is going to be out there for everybody to see on larger platforms, and I think everybody should watch that as well. Again, it was made with a narrative, Making a Murder made with the narrative that he's not guilty. This made with the narrative that he is guilty. Opposite. You know, and then going back to another documentary that we talked about a few episodes ago called Beyond Human Nature about the Monfiles 6, when we talked about the death of Tom Monfiles. That documentary didn't really have an angle, and I mentioned on it before, that that one is pretty down the middle. It interviews both sides. Facts. Right, and it just kind of throws the facts out there. Remember when the news used to do that? No. Oh, it has been a long I time. Don't, yeah, I don't, right. I'm, I'm only in my 40s. I think right. it's been pretty much slanted right. since way before we were born. Well, that's probably true. But um, a couple news and notes about the Monfiles 6, WBAY, Channel 2 in Green Bay, parole granted for Keith Kutzka, Monfiles 6 ringleader. The last of the six defendants convicted of a murder at a Green Bay paper mill in 1992 is getting parole. A letter from a member of the Wisconsin Parole Commission confirms Keith Kutzka was granted parole. It says he could be released from prison in Prairie du Chien as soon as August 29th. This was a couple weeks ago. All the rest of the guys have been out for a while. All right? of them are out. He's the last one. So now but all... He, I mean, he was in there a significant amount of time longer than anybody else. Right. So Dale Baston was paroled in 2017. He passed away nine months later. Michael Hearn was paroled in 2018. Michael Johnson and Ray Moore were paroled in 2019. And Mike Piaskowski was actually granted his release and exonerated 
by a judge five years after the conviction because of the shadiness going on with that trial. So again, which is still this, five years too long for that guy. I'm this sure. this stuff, as we just talked about, framing, coerced testimony, that does happen. We're not naive to the fact. I'm not naive to the fact that that happens. I'm but not either. Dang it! It's a case by case basis. And, you but, know, and we've, I mean, episode after episode, cops are people too. So they make mistakes and sometimes they're corrupt and, you know, they want, they just want the case to end and they're pretty convinced that this person is. So they, you know, find ways to, to put evidence where it needs to be put. So it does happen. And we did, uh, this was posted on our Facebook page uh, when he was released a few weeks ago. Um, and if you have not heard that episode, it's just a few episodes ago. I'm not sure what the number what the number of it is, but it's the Monfiles Six. It tells you all about the Monfiles, uh, the death of Tom Monfiles, and the the escapades going around on that trial. Also, if you haven't watched that documentary, again, it's called Beyond Human Nature. It's made by a Madison filmmaker, um, and it's it's well done. Episode uh, twenty four is a Monfiles Six episode. Episode twenty four. That documentary is well done. It does not have nearly a, uh, as much of an angle as making a murderer would or convicting a murderer would. It's just pretty much the facts and tells you really what you need to know about that case and that, you know, allows you really to make your own opinion about it. And then just the other day, last Friday, the historic Day Street paper mill will close Friday in Wisconsin. And this is the old James River Paper Company where the murder happened. Uh, first opened in 1901, the mill is the birthplace of quilted northern toilet paper and provided union employment to Green Bay families for generation. It's, Our butts have been happy about that place for a long time. Absolutely. It's the end of an era in Green Bay, Wisconsin. No, we are not talking about what's happening over at quarterback on the city's football team. An even older Green Bay institution is set to say farewell on Friday when the Day Street paper mill closes its doors after 122 years in business. The factory is truly historic, having opened in 1901 to make paper products by 1902. It was making the toilet paper that spawned brands like Northern Tissue and Quilted Northern. The factory also manufactured well-known brands like Brawny and Sparkle paper, to- paper Towels and Dixie Napkins. And also, to add my own, was the scene of one of the largest true crime stories in the history of the United States. So check out the Monfile 6 on episode 24. And as we said at the onset, we are heading in to spooky season. Great Lakes Paranormal Conference is coming up. We're looking forward to that. Days are getting shorter. Nights are getting longer. And of course, I got to find a list here. Well, that's, I thought you were going to break into a country song. I found one. The ghost hunting game is high at these 12 places in Wisconsin. First one it talks about, Boy Scout Lane, Stevens Point. The legends of this road vary a bit, but typically involve a group of Boy Scouts who were killed. Reports say you can see their shadows roaming the woods and flickers of their lanterns through the trees. I've never done a whole lot of research on that. Never been there. But I'm I've a, heard this legend a I, lot. I am an Eagle Scout, so it hits home a little. Well, there you go, buddy. Yeah. Boy Scout Lane. That was a long, long time ago. Number two, Rippin College. Legend says a fire that took place in the 1960s left behind several different spirits that like to roam this small college campus in Ripon, Wisconsin. Maybe Harrison Ford set that fire. <laughs> Former Ripon College student yeah, himself. Yeah, I was going to say the Wisconsin ties right there. Number three, Sanitarium Hill, Madison. Metallica.
This building in Madison, Wisconsin was once home to Lakeview Sanitarium, but people say the woods that surround the building are actually where most of the paranormal activity takes place. Number four, Grand Opera House in Oshkosh. A stage manager that worked for the Grand Opera House in Oshkosh from 1895 to 1967 named Percy Keene really liked his job and still likes to show up unannounced. It just so happens there's a ghost hunt going on next Friday and I will be that attending it. Mickey will be there. With my co-host of my other podcast, Monty and Mickey, will be him and his wife are going, and we'll, I'm looking forward to it. Scott has already been there multiple times. You said you did a walkthrough and everything. Right? Yeah, I've never done. I've never been there for paranormal reasons, but I've done. But you've been through the entire building. Uh, yeah, right? yeah. I mean, now you know a name that you can specifically ask for, right? Yeah. Percy Keen. Percy Keen. <laughs> he really likes his job, and he shows up unannounced. Yeah, I'm going to ask for Percy. Number five, Marquette University. It may just be old, persistent college pranks. But rumor has many of these buildings on Marquette University's campus are haunted by the spirits of priests that used to live and work there. I've never heard of one. <laughs> Just throwing <laughs> it out there. I've never heard of Marquette University um, being haunted at, uh, at I've all. never heard that either. And you're, yeah, you're more into that stuff or in tune to that than I am. But Number six, Bloody Bride Bridge. This one is another famous one in Stevens Point. Legend says a newly married couple were killed when their car went off the bridge into the Plover River. Drivers have reported seeing her specter along the road, while others say that late at night you will experience the couple sitting in your back seat staring at you in your rear view mirror. So now that is exactly like the Ridgeway Phantom. Ridgeway Phantom. The Ridgeway Phantom. Or where it, Ghost. Ridgeway where, Ghost. Where it shows up, apparently like shows up in your carriage yeah. and just stares at you. That's why I don't drive a carriage anymore. So, right? They just attract ghosts or something yeah, about right. carriages. <laughs> Otherwise, I was those. all over having a carriage. But uh, Next one on here, St. Nazian's, Wisconsin. Sound familiar? Many reports say the entire town of St. Nazian's, Wisconsin is haunted thanks to a German man who was labeled a heretic by the Catholic Church. Quote, he brought some of his followers with him, and they were known to have mystic beliefs and were sometimes called a cult. Father Oswald had plenty of unexplained happenings surrounding his death and the burial, and the area continues to experience the occult. And we do talk about that in our episode on St. Nazian's. 23. Episode, look at that. You could listen to 23 St. Nazians and go right into right. 24 St. Or just listen to Tom. them all. Uh, St. Nazians is a weird place. A lot of, a lot of history haunted to history to it that well, not a lot of it is true. Right. Supposed haunted history that the people who are defendants of the place do not appreciate, as we learned. Next one on here, Broadway Theater Center in Milwaukee. The ashes of the former owner lie beneath the floorboards and are illuminated by a spotlight. Well, that's kind of creepy. The ashes of the former owner lie beneath the floorboards and are illuminated by a spotlight at this theater in Milwaukee. People say that whenever the spotlight goes out, weird things happen. Have not heard of this one either. You haven't? I have not. Huh. I would have thought you'd have been there. Uh, next one Get on, here, on it. Highway 12 in Baraboo, which we might mention a couple times on our subject of tonight. Legend says a ghost hitchhiker roams a stretch of US-12 in Baraboo, Many drivers have reported seeing the spirit and then seeing him reappear a few miles later. We might have a name for that spirit as we go into today. You never know. Cliffhanger. Next one on here, the Fister Hotel, which we've spoken about. Quite a bit. The Fister Hotel in Milwaukee is rumored to be so haunted by its former owner that Major League Baseball players refuse to stay at it. And that's happened a few times this year. Mookie Betts didn't do it. Mookie Betts. A couple of of the Oakland A's wouldn't stay there either. So... And Mookie's not, he doesn't really buy into it. He just, you know, yeah. 
just but in case. Just right? in case, yeah. I don't I don't really believe any of that, but you know, I, I just in case. Next one here, Eagles Ballroom, Milwaukee, which is the rave. We've all been to the rave, yeah, but one of my I favorite places to go. Together. Before you buy tickets to your next show at the Rave Eagles Ballroom in Milwaukee, please know many patrons and performers have encountered paranormal activity while in the building. This you hear a ton. This you hear. This this was built as a gentleman's club, I believe. There used to be you know, a swimming pool in there. <laughs> if that doesn't haunt a place, nothing wrong. Um, Maybe it was burned down then if it was a strip joint. No, huh? not a strip joint. Uh, oh. an old Like an old gentleman's club where oh, people I... would, dudes would go and like smoke cigars right. and, oh. you know, talk about politics and uh, like a country all club. that jive. Like yes, a country yes, club, like yeah. a country. Country club before they were Rich old white men. Club. Yeah. yeah. And then number one on here, Summerwind Mansion, Vilas County. <sighs> Quote, Summerwind Mansion in Vilas County, Wisconsin, was built by the U.S. Secretary of Commerce, Robert Lamont, who, quote, apparently stirred up some unhappy spirits as he himself was the first to see ghosts. The legend of this abandoned property, which is closed to the public, has only grown in the 100 years since it was built. And it is about to be gone for good pretty soon. Yeah, and there's not much remaining of it as we have spoken about quite a bit on the show. Uh, Mickey and I were just there several weeks ago. We'll still be conducting an episode about that and our experiences on that. And we've got quite up. a few pictures and, and EVPs and other things that we can share at some point. That'll be coming up in the next few episodes. So get your Halloween decorations out. It's going to be a wild ride. Cut a hole in your sheets to be, to be a ghost. So this is a true crime case that came to us. wasn't necessarily a request, but it was sent to us in an email, and it's something that I think both of us had heard about. But not necessarily real knowledgeable of. So we, we jumped on this. August 17th, 1947, Wisconsin State Journal, headline, Police hunt men who shot wounded young Phillips girls. This is in Phillips, Wisconsin, which is up in Price County. A statewide search was underway Saturday night for two men who shot and seriously wounded two teenage Phillips girls. 14 and 16. Price County Sheriff Herbert Hammond sounded the alarm after Betty and Irene Kaderna told him they were shot Friday night when they resisted the efforts of two strangers to force them into a car. The girls, now at Park Falls Hospital, said they were returning from a movie when they saw a car parked about a block from their farm home. The two occupants, they said, ordered them to get in and take a ride. They refused, and one man jumped out and tried to pull them in. When they broke away, the other man got out, pulled a gun, and fired, hitting Irene, 14, in the stomach, and Betty, 15, in the shoulder. Severely wounding them, both of them. The two men escaped in their car. So there was actually, obviously this doesn't happen in Phillips, right? No. This doesn't happen in Phillips today, much less 1947. So there were actually three girls, Irene and Betty Kaderna, and their friend who was with them, Dorothy Vay. This was on August 15th. The article was two days later. 1947, they're walking home from a movie, the three of them. And this car pulls up and tells them to get in. They're going to take them for a ride. Two guys are in the car, and they refuse. So they actually grabbed the third girl, Dorothy Vay. And Dorothy fought, and she actually slipped out of her sweater and ran away. And so the three girls are running away, and the car turns around. The other man gets out and shoots at them, and shoots the two sisters, Irene and Betty Kaderna, um, who, thank God, survived. They did survive. But now there's a big manhunt, right? 
Two guys get out of a car and shoot three teenage girls in Phillips, Wisconsin. Three months later, November 15, 1947, Carol Carlson reports to authorities in Badger Village that her husband, Carl, hasn't returned home from the previous night. So they lived in Badger Village, which is kind of an interesting place. This was northwest of Madison, and it was built, I think it was built in like 1941, and it was a village built specifically for veterans coming back from World War II who were still going to college. So obviously these guys are a little more mature, right? They're married, they have families, they have kids. And while they're going to school, they don't want to be on campus, right? They don't want all the riffraff of being on campus. Riffraff. There's another one of those old man terms. I'm good at that. So they let Carl and his wife, Carol Carlson, lived at Badger Village. Carl and Carol. That's hard to say. So good luck to Carlson. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So because Carl was a Navy vet during World War II. So he fights for our nation during World War II, right? He comes back. He's still going to school. He's a pre-med student at UW-Madison, and they're living in Badger Village while he's going to school. Now, Badger Village he's, is... He's 25 years old already, too. Right, because, he, he, you know, again, he's fighting... Served. He served Six in, years. in the Navy. Yep. Now, Badger Village also, on an interesting note here, is where the Badger Ordnance Works was, which was the ammunitions plant. And if you remember many episodes ago when we talked about the bombing of Sterling Hall, the Badger... Ordnance Works was bombed, at least attempted to be bombed, by the New Year's Day gang who stole a plane and, Episode 11. and tried to drop Molotov cocktails on the ammunitions plant. That's a funny part of that episode. We kind of make fun of them a little bit. But they bit. forgot to light them. They forgot to light them. So they basically just threw mayonnaise cans, <laughs> jars of mayonnaise. That'll teach them. <laughs> down mayonnaise the in your plant. face. Now, sadly, they went on to, uh, I guess, atone for their uh, stupidity, idiocy, and bombed Sterling Hall and killed somebody. And you can hear about that again in uh, in, in episode eleven. But Badger Village is where this uh, munitions plant was. We're about we're just south of Devil's Lake, so we're we're thirty ish, thirty five miles or so northwest of Madison, right along Highway Twelve, which we talked about earlier. So Carl Carlson lives at Badger Village with his wife and his two-month-old daughter. They have a newborn. Yep. Again, he's a pre-med student at Madison. His wife's sister, Carol's sister, is coming into town from Michigan. November 14th at around 10 p.m. on a snowy, bitterly windy day, Carlson was waiting for his sister-in-law in a Madison railroad station. So she's coming into town. She goes, she's a student. The sister-in-law is a student at the University of Michigan. In Ann Arbor, yep. Her name is Janet Ann Rosenblatt. She was coming to town to attend a UW football game, and then she was going to meet up with Carlson and go to their home. So they're going. She's coming into town, and they're going to the football game. It's a it's a Wisconsin. It's a Badger versus Wolverines football game in yep. 1947. Yeah, baby. Right. So she goes. She's a student at Michigan. So she takes the train from Ann Arbor to Madison, and she's going to meet up with her sister and brother in law, and go to the football game. Now, how normal is that? Right. I mean, it happens all the time. Right. Michigan beat the Badgers 40-6 to six that game. Yeah, that doesn't, it's not important. We're not talking about <laughs> Although that. both teams were really good, and they were actually fighting for the Big Ten title that year, but Michigan took it to them. As freaking usual. Yeah. So she's coming to Madison, and they're going to go to the football game. So Carl leaves Badger Village to go meet her, to go pick her up when she gets off the train and bring her home, bring her to Badger Village to their home. But the train arrived late. And he never comes home. 
So his wife, here we are Saturday, early Saturday morning, is wondering what's going on. Where's Carl? Where's my sister? Right? There's no cell phones in 1947. She can't just call them. They're not showing up. So she's, she's telling the authorities in Badger Village that her husband is missing and her sister is missing. But what she didn't know and what the authorities at Badger Village didn't know is that a medical facility in Madison currently had Janet Ann Rosenblatt. And she had quite the story that she was telling. So Carl did, as we'd said, did travel to Madison to pick up his sister-in-law and they were going to go to the game on Saturday. And that late arrival of the train caused them to miss the last bus to Badger Village. So they ended up having to hike through the storm. Her train was late, so they had to hitchhike. Well, they, they ended up hiking through the storm, ending up at the corner of University Avenue and Park Street. At that point, desperate for a ride, they decided to hitchhike. Picked up by two young men, 22-year-old Buford Sennett and 23-year-old Robert Winslow. Picked up on University Ave and Park Street. I mean, I can... See this. Right, I've been right? there many times. I mean, what are we, six blocks from Camp Randall? Right. Eight blocks from yep. Camp Randall? Right. You know, I can see where they, they were at. So they get picked up by these two guys. You know, they seem nice at first, right? They're going to give them a ride. So what Carl and Janet didn't know is that these two are ex-cons. They're driving a Chrysler Plymouth that they had just stolen from the water superintendent in Galena, Illinois, earlier that day. Right. They met in prison. Psychopaths, most likely. Stole a car earlier that day in Illinois, and they were out for no good. A little bit of background on these guys, kind of painting the picture as to who they were and why they became as such young men already at a psychopathic level. Buford Center was smart enough that he actually graduated from high school early. Despite that, his troubles would dominate his actions. On October 25, 1943, he was sentenced to one to three years in Green Bay Reformatory for burglary of multiple schools. He was scheduled to be released in 1946. On April 3, 1945, he escaped from prison, from the prison honor farm, which is basically, he's not actually in prison. They, if you're you know on good behavior, they allow you to kind of go free in this honor farm type place. Well, he was captured the next day near Richland Center, his Richland Center home, after stealing cars in De Pere, Oshkosh, and Baraboo. He was given another one to two years by Brown County Municipal Court. Following his release, they then put him on parole from December 7, 1946 to November 6, 1947. Quote, he had served three years. He was a boy of high intelligence, and we thought he should be given a chance on parole. In some cases, too much institution can do more damage than good. We thought that was the case with him, unquote. His buddy, Robert Winslow, was the son of a farm family in Owen, Wisconsin, and was a grade school dropout. On June 16, 1943, he was sentenced to one to three year term in Green Bay Reformatory for car theft conviction in Clark County. He was released on January 4, 1946. On January 5, 1946, then began another one-year term in what was then called Wapon State Prison for escaping during his previous term. He then served from January 5, 1946 to November 11, 1946 and was released on good behavior. Senate and Winslow became friends while serving time in the Green Bay Reformatory. During the summer before the murder assault, Winslow lived at Senate's family home even. Both worked part-time at a local bowling alley. Senate also worked at a local lumber company. By that night... This horrible night we're going to describe, he hadn't shown up for work in over a week. So we have a couple of winners here. Yeah. A couple of guys that uh, really have uh, high hopes for life. So now they have these two young adults, 25-year-old Carl Carlson and 19-year-old Janet Ann Rosenblatt in their car, and they think they're getting a ride to their home in Badger Village. Now as they're approaching Club Chanticleer, which was a cocktail lounge in Middleton, so we're, what are we, seven-ish 
six, seven miles outside of Madison. They're heading on Highway 12 outside of Madison. They're approaching Club Chanticleer. Senate said he was tired and he wanted to lay down. So, so he, they told him to switch seats. So he had both Rosenblatt and Carlson go to the front seat. Squeeze in the front seat next to Winslow. So we got Winslow driving this 1940 Plymouth. We got Winslow driving. Stolen. And we got Carlson and Rosenblatt in the front seat with him. And we have Senate in the back. One guy laying down in the whole seat by himself. Who uh, says he's going to go to sleep. Now, within just a few minutes, as the car, again, was heading northwest on Highway 12, past Middleton, Rosenblatt later states she heard two loud clicks and then a flash. And then Carlson slumps forward. Buford Sinet had shot him twice in the head. So you can imagine this scene right now, right? I mean, imagine what Janet and Rosenblatt is thinking. Two shots in the head and one in the ribs. So her brother-in-law is just shot. She's alone now with these uh, two, enter your own word in there for them. Psychopaths. So, yeah, and Carlson had actually fallen onto her, spurting blood all over her clothes. So right. she's got evidence of it all over her now. So Winslow stops the car and he forces her, he forces Janet Rosenblatt into the back seat with Senate. And you can obviously realize what's going to happen now. Senate forces her to disrobe and then proceeds to repeatedly rape her in the car while Winslow is driving the car with her dead brother-in-law still slumped over in the front seat. And they, can t- they, they take turns doing this. Carlson is dead in the front seat and they take turns driving and raping her in the back seat all night long. I read that Senate had done it twice and Winslow did it once. But while this was going on, Senate ended up shooting Carlson one more time in the body with later revealing his motive for the murder in the first place was, quote, I didn't like the way he was looking at Bob, unquote. Pretty good reasoning, huh? Don't and you then, think? And then Winslow shot him a third time in the head. Right. So he shot a total of four times. He's already dead by the time he takes the third and fourth bullets. So they proceeded to do this throughout the night. One would drive, the other would have the way with her, and they did this while driving west on Highway 60. Through horrible winter conditions. Eventually they pull over, and they put Carlson's body in the trunk. And then later they stop and they pick up a large rock that they found that was lying on the side of the road, and they put that in the car Along on the floor of the backseat. So you can, you know, we know what they're, what they're planning on doing here. Later, Rosenblatt said that she heard one of them say that they were approaching Blue River, which is a small town along the Wisconsin River, lower Wisconsin River, south of Richland Center. And there they stopped, tied the rock to Carlson's body, and threw him in the river over a bridge. After Winslow went through Carlson's pockets, removing 80 cents and a wristwatch. You got to get that 80 cents. Hell yeah, and the wristwatch, I'm sure. They then, so after they do all this, they then find a spot along the road, well, it's, so it's got to be like 2, 3 in the morning now, right? So they find a spot along the side of the road. They pull off, and they try to sleep because that's what you do, right? I mean, I guess you try to sleep. They catch some shut-eye, I guess, after you, uh, you have such a long day, apparently. So they're trying to sleep after they murdered somebody, and they repeatedly rape a hostage. So one sleeps while the other watches Janet Rose. Holding her, preventing her from escaping. Quote, I couldn't get away, Rosenblatt later said. I was so scared that they would try and kill me, I couldn't sleep, although the men took turns napping. Now at daybreak, they turn around and they go back to the river. They go back to where they dumped Carlson's body. To see if the body had surfaced. Right, because they wanted to make sure it sank. Right, and it hadn't. It hadn't surfaced. 
They then drive to the outskirts of Richland Center, where Sennett was from, and he goes into the city. Well, he probably goes to his parents' house or something. Actually, changes clothes. Winslow held Rosenblatt in a culvert while Sennett drove home to change his clothes, discarded his blood-stained black and white plaid jacket, pants, and shirt. As his mom fixed him cheese sandwiches, he told her that he and a friend were headed to Owen, Wisconsin. Because they knew of an abandoned farm near there where they could hide out. What? Who? who, I'm going to say who does this. Obviously, nobody does this. Your mom is making you a cheese sandwich. Well, yeah. He's probably hungry. I mean, all that murder and rape will give a guy an appetite. I guess so. She doesn't know. Oh, right. So when... when, He he lies to her and says we're headed to Owen just to go hang out or whatever, you know. So nobody has any idea what's going on except for the psychopaths themselves and I mean, they, Janet Rose. Just the mentality of these two guys. Who, they, they're calm enough to, to sleep. Right. <laughs> they pull over the road yeah, like on the road and nothing. they just... Right. Right. And they just, they, they try to sleep. And then he goes home and he changes his clothes and gets a cheese sandwich. Like, sure. this is running the mill well, He got stuff. one for Bob, too. I'm sure he did. Multiple... Che- I mean, mom's looking out for both of these guys. So when he comes back, they they get on they get on the road and they they're heading on Highway 80 now and they're heading north to Hillsboro, which we talked about a few episodes ago. Hillsboro is the site of Cheyenne Valley, where I was just a few weeks ago. Now about 9 a.m. the next morning, instead of getting ready to go to the Badger game, right? Janet Rosenblatt was supposed to be going to the Badger game the next day. She's dealing with this stuff about six miles south of Hillsboro on Highway 80 in a car. And while they're driving, it hits an ice patch. Remember, this is November. It's it's snowing in November. Conditions right? were it's, horrible it's, as they're driving through this and, and as they were trekking through it on feet before Carlson got killed. So the car skids off the road, and it gets stuck in a ditch. And while both of these guys are trying to put chains around the tires to push it out. While Winslow went across the road to get a piece of fence that he was going to use to, to, as, as a, a chain As a makeshift tire, chain, right. right. So they're trying what they can to get this car out of the ditch imagine these two guys i mean jesus christ well and winslow's gotta have blood all over him still she's got blood on her still i mean right so she when this is happening so when they're they're putting this makeshift chain around the tires to get the car that they have stuck in a ditch out rosenblatt her clothes are all ripped up she has blood stains all over she's hysterical i'm sure i mean jesus but she had her wits about her enough to open the back door she took the only chance that she was going to get and she ran onto the highway into traffic. But Senate heard and quickly turned to her, saying, quote, If you make a break, you're the first one that'll get knocked off, unquote. But she did it anyway. And, and why Why wouldn't you? Well, of course you're going to die That's, either way. Right. So she tries to wave down cars. The first two go right by her. They think she's drunk. Yep. They go right by her. The third car stops. Uh, Rich and Center stonemason William Harris, with, okay. who was with his wife and two children at the time. So William Harris... Thank God, stops. Right, because a, a milk truck driver saw her bloodstained clothes and kept driving. As you said, another driver thought she was drunk and just kept driving. Finally, this stonemason guy, along with his family, stop and and just try to figure out what's going on. She screamed that they had killed her brother and that she was next. So he, he gets out of the car. He tends to this hysterical, bloody, screaming girl. Senate got out and walked halfway toward her. He screamed that she that she was crazy and that and Harris shouldn't believe what she was saying. Harris recognized Senate from some of the stories that we've already mentioned and told Rosenblatt to get into his car. Harris walked slowly towards the stolen Plymouth, grabbed the keys out of the ignition, and threw them into the snowbank. 
then walked back to his car and tried again to get drive up the icy hill that everyone was having a hard time getting up. How about the wits of this guy, Mr. Harris? And calm. He walks Not over to their big, car while right, they're still there right. and takes the keys out. Chucks them. And, and calmly does it because he doesn't want to draw attention to himself by running around because then they'd, they'd think they'd know something was going on. And then the two guys take off running on foot. Harris drove Rosenblatt to the authorities in Hillsboro. Saves their life. Yeah. So the sheriff's department goes and gets the abandoned car. And they drive Janet Rosenblatt to the Methodist Hospital in Madison, which doesn't exist anymore. It took him, it took Vernon County Sheriff Morris Moon four hours to notify other police departments that Rosenblatt was now safe because the conditions were so horrible, even communication was at, backed up and shut down. And at first, her story is somewhat unbelievable. Right. Right? I mean... Especially in those small areas, you just don't hear this happening. So there is some suspicion about this. But obviously she has an exam done at the hospital, and they find her to have been, quote, criminally assaulted and treated her for shock. So they know that she's telling the truth. So now the tables have turned a little bit, right? Now Sonette and Winslow are the ones with the problem. First of all, because they stole a car in Illinois and took it across state lines, the FBI is now involved. They're both ex-cons. Both uh, Janet Rosenblatt and Harris, William Harris, were able to positively identify them in photo lineups. And it sounds like Harris kind of already recognized Senate. Right. And there were also some personal papers of Senate left in the car. As well as a rifle, a shotgun, and a pair of brown Oxford shoes found. And to cover the Illinois plates on the car to avoid detection, they put Wisconsin plates on the car, which were traced back to a car owned by Sennett's father. And these two men were also suspected of punching a Madison cab driver only three hours before picking up the hitchhikers in a gravel quarry near Cottage Grove, Wisconsin. So these guys were on one hell of a run. They were. But if if you're going to commit a murder and then abduct somebody and drive them in that car, maybe not put your dad's license plates on the stolen Well, they're, you're, they're not the pro that you are when it comes to this stuff, okay? I'm just throwing the pointers out there. <laughs> right, let's give them some tips while they're long dead now. But in any event... Sinet and Winslow are on the run. They were also linked to three Richland Center burglaries, a small amount of cash, and a twenty-two caliber rifle allegedly taken. So these guys were on like a Bonnie and Clyde type stretch going on. But now they're on foot, right? They don't have a car. They wind up in the woods. They break into a schoolhouse in Yuba, which is a very small village, kind of between Richland Center and Hillsboro. Just to warm up, really, and kind of get a few hours of sleep. And then they do hotwire a car in Yuba and drive to Westby where they ditch that car and they steal another car. In the meantime, Carlson's wife, she had come to the Dane County Jail to find out what was going on with her missing husband. Thought her sister was in Methodist Hospital with a traffic accident injury. The sheriff's department was reluctant and initially declined to tell her about the murder. After calling Carl's parents and superior, they finally told the poor woman that her husband was dead. So now they're in Westby and they steal a Studebaker and they take off towards Clark County, which is where Robert Winslow is from. These are his stomping grounds, right? So they're thinking they're going to stay at Winslow's parents' house or his brother-in-law's farm, but they can't because apparently police and the FBI have already been there. So they know, people know, that they've committed this murder. 
people that are already hot on their tail. So nobody lets them stay with them. They have no place to go. They headed to the house of Winslow's brother-in-law, George Schultz and Owen, to hide out. Schultz refused to take them in and then called the police. So they decide that they're going to go to the Pete Pomputo farm, which is a place where Winslow used to work. He used to be a farmhand on this farm. So now they come to this farm of Pete Pomputo where Winslow used to work. Quote, I was glad to see Bob. Hardly anybody around here knew about that murder and rape business down toward Madison, and our family sure didn't know Bob was mixed up with it, unquote. So they were actually happy to see his buddy, having no idea what they were, what kind of trouble they'd been in. But again, the cops are hot on them. A posse of officers from seven counties were, were on the scene. So they knew they were going there. The, the authorities are putting together this posse of seven counties, and they... They're on the scene within minutes of them getting to the Pompudo farm. Sheriff Ray Cucci <laughs> immediately organized a posse, which he accompanied to the Pompudo's farm 27 miles north of Nielsville, which is the county seat of Clark County. They then drove into the Pompudo's farm yard just as Tony Pompudos, who is Pete Pompudos's son. So Tony, Tony Pompudos has emerged from the house, and he was asked by the officers whether the hunted men were in there, and he said no. They're not here. So he initially lies to the police. But then he comes closer and he whispers to them. And he says, quote, they are in there, but please don't go in. They have guns and they said they'll shoot the pants off of you. So not not wishing a fight with the Pompudo's family in the house, the officers drove out of the yard, a departure witnessed by the two fugitives in the farmhouse. All officers withdrew to lead the fugitives to believe that they were safe in their hideout. But the posse members circled back and surrounding the premises kept watch from advantageous hiding places. And Paputos actually told Winslow that police were here about a minor traffic incident. So the, the posse is, shows up on the on the scene, just to recount count what we're talking about here. The posse of police show up on the scene. They're seen by Sinet and Winslow. The posse then leaves, making Sinet and Winslow believe that they're gone, that they're okay, that they don't think they're there. But they don't leave. They just hide. So they have the house surrounded. They know they're in the house. Authorities have the house surrounded, but Winslow and Sinet just can't see them. So they think they're okay. They send the two sons out to buy enamel because they want to paint the car so they can disguise the car. Anthony and his brother Al said they'd go buy cigarettes and paint for the stolen car. On the way back, they met this police roadblock, were told to return to the farm, tell the fugitives they were surrounded and gather up their family and get the hell out of there at all costs. So they did. So now authorities then told Sonette and Winslow through a PA system, so they have a loudspeaker, and they told them they're surrounded, and then they had 20 minutes to come out. And if they didn't, quote, we'll gas you out, or we are all prepared to blast you out, unquote. So they're done. They know they're done. And after waiting about five minutes, both Sonette and Winslow walk out, and were taken into custody without further incident. Real tough guys. Yeah, well, you don't have a whole lot of choice unless you end up killing yourself. 66 and a half hours after Janet Rosenblatt and Carl Carlson stepped into the car, which is about 10.30 Friday night, until about 4 o'clock the following Monday when they were 
taken into custody. Senate actually admitted the only reason for their surrender was there was a, the fear of a plane that was circling around. It was the FBI, but it turns out that plane was just a reporter. So while they're walking out of the house to be apprehended, a journalist who was on the scene wrote about it the next day in the Chippewa Herald Telegram, and he describes what he saw of the two pair. And he says, quote, Winslow and Sinet were a sorry pair. As dirty and disheveled, they tramped from the barn, dragging their muddy feet through ankle-deep snow. Unshaven, their hands crusted with dirt, and their clothes stiff with the accumulated leavings of three days of fast, hard travel, they presented an unclean picture of the wrong trail. I would have thought they were wearing double-breasted suits. I'm a little surprised, aren't you? Says Winslow, a thin, slight youth with brown hair and wide, staring eyes, followed the lead of the heavier, taller Sinet, trailing him by perhaps 100 feet on the surrender trail. Dressed in a blue plaid jack shirt, dirty blue jeans and rubbers, he was manacled with his arms twisted behind him and were more than a little forcibly escorted to a waiting police car and transported to Nielsville, unquote. So it just describes this, this pathetic picture of these two pathetic Men Remorseless looking psychopaths. not so tough. And that Winslow dude looks like a scary dude. Like every picture you see of him, his eyes are wide freaking open. Right. Oh my God. Like deer in the headlights. And I don't know if it's a scared deer in the headlights or a psychotic deer in the well, headlights. You, you've but seen those those pictures of Charlie Manson and yes, his crazy Very eyes. much like that, yeah. yes. That's sign of a psychopath. So the fugitives were brought back to Madison, and during eight hours of questioning at the Dane County Courthouse, people of all ages, as young as five, packed the courtroom just because they wanted to hear about these two vigilantes or escaped convicts that became national news. The story of their capture became national news, especially throughout the Midwest. They took Sinet to Blue River, to the bridge where he threw Carlson's body off of, and within a few minutes, they drugged the river, and they, uh, they did find his body. During the drag, the sheriff and his men led Senate back and forth across the bridge many times, urging him to pinpoint where they dumped the body. Senate wasn't cooperating at first, so the sheriff grabbed him by the collar, threatening to throw him over. Very quickly and accurately, Senate then pointed out where the body was, and within 10 minutes, the body was found. The two also confessed to the shooting of the Coderna sisters and Phillips three months prior, which we talked about on the onset of this story. Now, back in these days, I guess, you really did get a speedy a speedy trial oh, yeah. because they were brought in on November 17th or 18th and they're sentenced the next day. It said it took only 90 hours from the time of the Madison kidnapping to be in front of the judge. From the like, time it happened to in front of the judge in 90 hours. They both they so they they both pled guilty, they confessed and superior judge Roy Proctor sentenced them right away the next day. Like they didn't they waived a trial, I guess. And he just, this ain't happening today. I mean, Jesus, no, this, ta- this, ta- this takes months. Well, first it's got to be on TV, and they got to right. hype it up that way. So, and listen to what the judge says to them. He says, quote, I do not believe that ever in the history of Dane County, perhaps in the entire state of Wisconsin, has there ever been a more cold-blooded, cruel, and revolting crime committed than this one which you have perpetrated by you two ruffians. Words fail me in an attempt to express my utter contempt and scorn for you. I think you are fortunate that this offense occurred in the state of Wisconsin. The citizens of the state of Wisconsin have always opposed capital punishment, but I believe that if we continue to have recurring, inhuman, and bestial crimes, such as you have admitted, there will be such a demand that we will have provisions for capital punishment. Personally, 
I don't believe that I would have any qualms whatever if our Constitution provided that in cases like this, I would have the power and authority to sentence you to the gas chamber, the electric chair, or to be hanged by the neck until dead. However, I must be guided by our Constitution and statutes. He then sentences them to life in prison uh, and hard labor in Wapan. So he, the judge tells them right to their face right. that the only reason they're not getting the death penalty is because he can't do it. He wants to sentence them to death. And the Carlson murder actually became the first big case handled by a, a group now called the Wisconsin Crime Laboratory. This organization, uh, an interesting note, would later process the scene at the Ed Gein Farm near Plainfield, Wisconsin, less than 10 years later. So we keep having these cruel, inhumane, and bestial crimes that the judge says that maybe one day we would get the death penalty for, and we still don't. Right. Even after all the stuff that's come from these guys. In fact, while eligible for parole in 11 years, authorities plan to file additional charges on rape and kidnapping to prevent any parole for either one of these gentlemen. So they were going to make sure these guys couldn't get out for a long, long time. Several hundred university students blocked the courthouse jailway driveway, and the police had to transport the the convicts quickly in fear of the mob demonstration ending in lynching. So people were a little pissed at these monsters. But... You know, as we all know, life sentences rarely end up being life sentences. And this would unfortunately not be the end of the scourge that is Buford Sinet. So now while they have now, when Winslow and Sinet have now been convicted and sentenced to a a life of hard labor, right? District Attorney Francis Garrity of Jefferson County wanted to talk to them about another missing person, an eight-year-old girl from Fort Atkinson who went missing from her own driveway on her way home from school. On May 1st, 1947, Georgia Jean Weckler. So th- this is a pretty well-known case in Wisconsin. It was huge at also. the time. Um, in, in, even in true crime circles, uh, it's been covered by a number of true crime uh, platforms, podcasts, TV shows, etc. throughout the years. Generation Y covered it, which is a, a massive true crime podcast. Uh, and they just actually had an update about it recently. So the Georgia Jean Weckler case is a case that's out there and still being talked about 75-ish years after she went missing. Now, the Wecklers were a pretty prominent farming family outside of Fort Atkinson, right off of Highway 12. Now, in the town of Oakland, which is about seven or eight miles down the road from Fort Atkinson, Georgia was a third grader at Oakland Center Elementary School, about a mile down the road from their house. She attended the school with two of her three older siblings, her 12-year-old brother and her 10-year-old sister. They also had a 16-year-old sister who obviously didn't go to that school. Georgia Jean would actually, she would usually ride her bike with her brother and her sister to school, but on the morning of May 1st, it was raining. So their mother, Eleanor, drove them to school. So all a pretty normal family dynamic here, right? Nothing uh, weird about the family dynamic. They were a, a pretty normal farming family. Well respected in the community. Everybody knew who they were and knew about the kids and everything. So. Actually a family that had been there for well over 100 years by that point. Their ancestors had settled that area, much of that area, uh, way back in the mid-1850s. Now for some reason... And I don't really understand this, but George's class let out at 3 p.m. that day. And her siblings 
went to class until 3.30. So I'm not sure why you're at the same school classes get out at different times of the day. But Georgia, instead of waiting for her two siblings, got a ride home from a classmate's mother, which was not unusual. This woman had given Georgia rides home before, right? There was certainly nothing unusual or weird about that at all. It's a small rural school. It's a small rural community. Everybody knew each other, right? So Georgia gets a ride home from her classmate's mother. Now, the Weckler home was set back about a half mile off the road, and she was dropped off at the mailbox to her house. And the woman that gave her the ride stated that she dropped her off there every time. Every time that she would take Georgia home, which again was not unusual, she would drop her off by the mailbox at the end of their driveway, which was a half a mile from their house. They had a really, obviously, a road going into their house, much more of a road than a driveway. So Georgia stated that she was going to grab the mail and then pick flowers that day to make a May Day basket because the driveway was lined with trees. It's basically set back in the woods. And they watched as Georgia got out, got the mail. Skipped down the driveway. And saw her skip down the driveway towards the house. And they drove away, thinking nothing about it, right? Like, they, they, like every other time they'd done sure. it before. Georgia Jean never made it to the house. And she's never been seen again. Now, her mother was home. Didn't really make anything about the fact that the other siblings came home without her, as she thought that her father... George had picked her up, and they were out. But when her father came home at 6 o'clock, she wasn't with him. Panic set in. Now you know you got a problem. So a massive search ensues, right? Hundreds of volunteers. And there was an eyewitness who came forward that said he was driving down Highway 12, and he said that he saw a black car pull into the drive soon after Georgia was dropped off. So now they know, at least from what this eyewitness is saying, that somebody likely nabbed her. Now the community helps the family do work around their farm, planting, milking, and so forth, as George and the family could focus on finding her. George was very active in the search. He was constantly talking with people, traveling, getting the word out. He was going on radio stations in Chicago, anything he could do to keep the story of his daughter alive, so people would keep talking about it, keep trying to find her. But they never did. And they never found the mail that she got from the mailbox either. So eventually, the story begins to fade. There was even a reward quickly growing to over $10,000, which back then was a lot of money. So days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months. Georgia Jean is never found. She fades from the headlines. People have to start going you know, back to their lives. And she slowly stops being talked about until December when the following headline appears in the Capital Times. December 15th, 1947. Sunette confesses to Weckler killing. Pair snatched girl put body in river. Quote, Buford Sunette, 22 years old, convicted slayer of a University of Wisconsin student last month, has confessed that he and an unidentified friend kidnapped eight-year-old Georgia Jean Weckler last May for ransom, but then killed the child and threw her body in the Wisconsin River. 
The convict said the child was shot and was given an overdose of sleeping pills, apparently before any attempt was made to collect a ransom for her from her parents. Mr. and Mrs. George Weckler, well-to-do farmers living near Fort Atkinson. The child died sometime during the night following her abduction May 1st as she was returning home from a country school. Sinet's confession did not explain the child's shooting. He said he believed she died from swallowing nearly a full box of sleeping pills, which his accomplice, whom he refuses to name, forced upon her. So a little more specific on his actual confession. He supposedly picked her up along road by their house, and the plan was to return her once the ransom was paid. They never actually meant to hurt her, or that wasn't the intention. They later decided against the ransom and were about to return her before being spotted by the telephone lineman that was currently working at the, around the area. They then forced to, f- were to flee with her still in possession, and after that she was held in the woods outside of Richland Center. Senate claimed he had given her two sleeping pills before he, was, he went to town, leaving her behind as he had a date that night in Richland Center. When he returned, he found her dead, saying that the accomplice had allegedly given her even more pills, as Scott alluded to. Senate stated that they weighed the body down with cinder blocks, tossed it from Blue Ridge Bridge into the Wisconsin River, not far from where Carlson's body was tossed. Many hours were spent searching, but the body was never found. So now he refuses to name the second accomplice of his, right? But he says it was not Winslow. So he does this with another person who he has hold the girl while he goes off on a date. He had a hot date. Right, sure. Man's still got needs. He's 22 years old. the calmest murderer I've ever heard of in my life. And it turns out the hideout was later reportedly investigated with no collaborating evidence ever found. So these confessions... Again, he takes the police again to the, up to Blue River, right to the basically the same spot where he threw Carl Carlson's body in the river, and he says that he threw her in there. So they drag the river again, and they don't find her. No evidence or signs of it at all. And they're they're do it for days. They're searching for days. They don't find her. As Mickey said, they find the hideout that they were using when they were on the run. Nothing. No evidence there. They drug the bottom of that. Took truckloads of samples of dirt out right, to find anything. Obviously, there's no DNA at that time, but they're looking for anything, bones, clothing, anything they can find, nothing. So police get discouraged, right? And the more they talk to Sinet, the more his story kind of changes. Turns out he quickly recanted the entire confession as it was only oral and refused to allow it to be documented or signed. Says he was kidding? Like I don't, I don't know what you say at that point. He just there's says, no, no proof just... because you say, like you say, it wasn't you didn't allow him to document it, and he never signed anything. So, some to this day, some believe that Senate did it, but others don't believe his story at all. Later in 1947, Ed J. Lindoff of Delavan, Wisconsin, told authorities Georgia Jean's body might be buried beneath a, a nearby greenhouse. Claimed he saw two men pull a child-sized package from the car trunk throw it into an excavated area, and cover it with dirt. In 1996, now 70-year-old Lindloff again came forward with the same story, decided it was too costly to dig up the area based on such flimsy evidence, so they never bothered. The decision was made by Jefferson County Chief Deputy Michael Sullivan. They never even bothered to look because the flimsy argument didn't hold up very well. This is still active. I mean, there's there's still people looking for her. They, They just dug something up like three years ago. Like real recent looking for this girl. Uh, And there are people working on this today, and the people working on it today do believe 
that Buford Sinet at least did him. commit this crime. And so they're trying to, I mean, they're trying to find whatever they can, obviously, but they're trying to to find her and they're trying to prove the fact that Buford Sinet did this because even though he recants his confession, it was really believable. Right, especially with his tracks, his track record. In fact, they looking so much for any kind of lead on November. 16th, a notorious day in history. November 16, 1957, Ed Gein was arrested. They even questioned him about George and Jean's disappearance, but no connection was ever found. So they were literally looking under every rock and every other serial killer around trying to figure this out. So he stays in prison, obviously, for many years. But even after what he's been convicted of, even what he confessed to, and wound up recanting, and even after the judge that originally sentenced him publicly said he wished he could have sentenced him to die, Buford Sinet is paroled in 1974 after serving 27 years. Now he's, what is he, 50-ish, late 40s? He's not an old man by any stretch, right? He can still do quite a bit of damage to somebody if he chooses. So he's paroled. And where does Buford Sinet go after he's paroled? Appleton, Wisconsin. I've heard of that place. Who knows why? He had, I don't, he had no connections here right. that I know of. So he, he, he comes to Appleton. It said he'd learned a, the barber trade while he was in prison. He told Outagamie County authorities that he earned almost $30,000 by running a gambling operation while in prison, so he even had some money. However, he worked about two years as a service service station attendant and a volunteer driver for Outagamie County Department of Social Services, providing transportation for welfare clients. Yeah, so he's working with, uh, this is a convicted murderer, again, who the judge told him he wished he could have killed, and he's working with vulnerable people. Welfare clients, right. And he actually worked, around. He worked for two years at the Moasis. The truck stop on 41 in, in Little Shoot. Really? That's what the service station is. The oh, Moasis. Written, oh, I didn't even we've put that all together. Been oh, many, lots of times. times. Wow. And supposedly, he even the little apartment he had, he kept it very clean. He had one or two friends, but he tried to stay out of public as much as possible. So it sounds like he maybe was reformed. Yeah, well, lo and behold. Hey. By like 1987. A, like the theme of a lot of our other episodes. He's arrested pleads no contest, and is sentenced to 20 years in prison by Outagamie County Judge Michael Gage for molesting at least two girls under the age of 12 over several years. Now 62 years old, five charges of sexual assaults against a 9-year-old on a weekly basis in the summer of 1985 and a 13-year-old in February of 1986. The assaults of the 9-year-old were supposedly happened while he lived with his girlfriend's mother, with the girl's mother, and the girl said he told her she'd be forced to live in a foster home if she said anything. A few of the charges were later dropped. He pleaded no contest to first-degree sexual assault. The parole was revoked and sentenced once again to 20 years by Outagamie County judge. Sentence ran consecutively to the remainder of the previous sentence due to the obvious parole violation. So good call on uh, on paroling that convicted murderer yeah, after he, 27 years. He really years, learned right? his lesson. Because yeah, he's, the, you know, most of these people don't reoffend, do they? Right, and and th- this time they even questioned him again about George Jean Weckler, and this time again, this time he maintained that he had nothing to do with the case. So you can't even believe anything the guy says. 
Obviously. In 1995, Senate somehow among drug offenders, robbers, and rapists was recommended for early release. Just because the prisons are overpopulated, growing far above capacity, in fact, it grew to over 11,000 inmates, about 3,000 over the proposed capacity. Now 69 years old, Senate was not set free, thank God. The possibility of it brought vigorous protests from Jerry Harris of Prairie du Sac. He was the son of that William Harris who right. helped Janet Ann Rosenblatt escape. Quote, at the time of the sentencing, Senate swore he would get my father. I don't think they should ever consider releasing him. My father is 76 and lives alone. A person who has spent 48 years in jail will never forget or forgive who was responsible for putting him there, unquote. So he dies in custody in 2008 at the age of 82. Robert Winslow was also paroled right around the same time, even earlier, I believe. And he, last we heard, he's working, he was working in the Racine area for many years. I don't know, um, as far as I can tell, he Never got in trouble again. I can't find him on anything. Right, there's it's it's really tough to find even his whereabouts or his passing. And it's I it was really difficult to find any information about what happened to, to Janet Ann Rosenblatt as well. So the, these are the cases that I struggle with. And we've talked about this a lot. You, you know, these Carl Carlson was a, a Navy vet, served our country in World War Two. A med student at a at a great school like UW Madison, obviously. A young husband, a young fa- he had a two month old. Yeah, a young home. father. He's got big plans for this world, right? Talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So you know, as Mickey said, I wanted to talk about their legacy. I wanted to talk about what they left behind: Janet Rosenblatt, Carol Carlson, Cora Carlson, which was their two month old. But obviously, when you when you you dig into this, you you see that they were, they didn't live public lives, so, and we just didn't know everything about everybody like we do nowadays. It was just a little different world, and it's unfortunate because that allows monsters like these guys to get away with it for a little longer, and and for their story to be forgotten, and thus the victims forgotten, even quicker than usual. Right, and and one of the. And we've talked about this in other areas, too. One, one of the positives about something that we do, not only that, what, what consumers of true crime content, which is super popular right now, right? And for a long time. We, we consume it. We watch it. We listen to it. Obviously, Mickey and I research it and do it. Um, we're not going to be talking about Carl Carlson without talking about Buford Sinet, and that's one of the egregious misjustices of our world and we've said that before it's like these big guys these guys become almost glorified like like not heroes necessarily but they're the ones being talked about when the victims are completely forgotten and that's just unfortunately that's how it works but it's it's sad and it's disgusting now you mentioned glorifying these guys so the the clark county jail where these guys were is now a museum it's a beautiful building built in 1897. We don't we don't build jails and courthouses that look like this anymore. Certainly not like we used to. Yeah. Um, but one of their exhibits, you know, like one of the things I used to promote it is that you can see the holding cell of Sinet and Winslow, yep. right? You know, one of the most famous talked about true crime cases ever in the state of Wisconsin. You can see where they were held after they had this n- night of god awful horror. 
Right. Now, I don't blame Clark County for that. I mean, we're de- we're definitely going to hit that up at some point. Uh, you know, but that's where we are as a culture now, for good or for bad. So I, I feel good about the things that we do because this does make us talk about Carl Carlson. This does keep his name alive, right? The unfortunate thing is we have to talk about Buford Sinet as well. And that's, you know, that's the the unjust world that we're a part of right now. And like you say, these, these victims are just forgotten about and everybody knows who Senate and Winslow are, but not who they killed and who they raped and, and who they kidnapped. So the Reverend Kenneth Patton, minister of the First Unitarian Society of Madison, gave a memorial sermon for Carl Carlson on Sunday, November 23rd, 1947. Right, so this wasn't his funeral. That was in Superior. This is, I think, this was pretty much just a normal Sunday mass service that was given, and it, you know, the the, the sermon was apparently meant to be a memorial to Carl Carlson. And in this apparent memorial sermon, the minister blames everybody, but Sinet and Winslow. Right. He 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 says first he he's, he excoriates the Green Bay Reformatory where they were. Right, says that they, um, quote, turned them from petty thieves into wanton killers and rapers. The state runs the schools in which criminals take postgraduate courses in human depravity. Wow. Right? He says, we killed this man because we've produced a world that takes babies born into it and turns them into kill-crazy sex maniacs, unquote. And he goes on and he blames Hollywood. He blames <laughs> magazines. He blames comic books. He blames, you know, all kinds of stuff. Newspapers talking about crime in 19... This is in 1947 he's saying this stuff, right? He says, quote, The only fitting memorial we can build to Mr. Carlson is a more decent and intelligent world. We killed this man, all of us together, although only two held the gun. Now we must repent and reform, unquote. So now it's our fault? It's everybody else's fault. Yeah, that'll be a hard pass from me there, Father. But I'm sure they appreciated that very eloquent memorial where you defended his killers as victims. There's all this nonsense about how it's society's fault, right? It's always somebody else's fault. It's our systemic institutions that create these people. That's no more valid in 1947 when this guy used it than it is when that very same excuse is used today, it's all to avoid personal accountability. Right. Don't cry me any tears for Buford Sinet and Robert Winslow. We didn't fail them. There are plenty of people we did fail here. Janet Ann Rosenblatt, who had to live a life of trauma, probably suffered from PTSD the, you know, the rest of her days. It, I mean, for someone who's still alive, rape is... is uh, horrible a crime as there is you know it's just a step above murder right so yeah these these people she survived so she had to live with that the rest of her life carol carlson who was a widow in early 20s cora carlson their daughter who grew up never knowing her father that's who we failed because we didn't protect them from animals like buford sinette who was let out of reform school because what quote sometimes too much institution can be more bad than good isn't that what you said before, Mick? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes not. The victims are the ones we need to remember, not 
not the monsters. I mean, learn from the mistake of the monsters. Try to prevent people from going that haywire going forward. But we need to remember the victims and have some kind of legacy for them going forward and, and try to put in the background the monsters who did the crimes. In no just world should Carl Carlson and Buford Sinet's lives ever intersect. Ever. Right. But, this is, but we don't live in a just world. That's for sure. But maybe we can all try and make it a little more so. Be kind. Help your neighbor. And be accountable for your own damn actions. Amen, brother. <laughs>